Hey, church. Uh, my name is Alexis. We haven't met before. Um, I'll be reading scripture today. And our passage comes from the book of Mark, uh, chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. And they brought him to a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Thank you. Thanks, Alexis. Well, once again, my name is Cameron. Um, seriously, is an honor to be with you all. Um, and we are uh, picking back up today. It's been a couple months since we've been out of the gospel according to Mark. Uh, and we're back, obviously, in chapter 7, as she read. Um, and I just, every time we, we leave and come back into Mark, which will happen many more times because we've still got, like, over half the book that we're working through, um, we want to just take a second to kind of reorient why, why we're doing this. Like, why, why Mark? Why taking it one story at a time? You know, it's going to take us a couple of years at this pace to get through it. Um, and the short answer is this. I, I don't know if you instinctively, even if you've been a Christian for a long time, I don't know if you instinctively think of, like, Bible reading this way or not. But, but the point of this is to see and to know Jesus better. It's, it's to see his actions and to hear his voice and to see the way he moved throughout his life as the incarnated son of God. And, and not, just, not just as some distant historical figure, something curious that we read about and go, oh, yeah, that's interesting. It seemed like, a, seemed like an interesting teacher. But, but as the one who is risen, alive, active, working, reigning right now. And so if, you, if you're a believer, we do this. That's whatever passage we're opening, but, it, but in particular, we're in the Gospels, these, these biographies about Jesus. We're, we're here to better understand this Jesus that we claim that we follow, that we might love him more, know him more, and follow after him more closely by the power of his spirit. Amen? And... And by the same token, if you're not a believer, welcome. Like, we're so glad you're here. We're so glad you're here. Um, but nonetheless, we, we hope that you might get a fresh glimpse at this very same Jesus and, and, and become convinced that he is who he says he is, that, that he loves you so much that he died to save you from your sins and that he's worth following with everything that you have. That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing, and that agenda is not going to change. Um, but nonetheless, we pick up with the gospel according to Mark. Today's passage is another healing narrative, and, and we've kind of been, if you recall, in a string of healing narratives, um, a few other kinds of narratives as well, but a lot of healing narratives in this stretch of Mark. Um, 
But this one deals with something that I think is a little bit unique in terms of what we've experienced so far in the gospel. This, is, this one deals with a man with an ongoing disability that served to cut him off from relationship and intimacy with those around him in extremely severe terms. So he's unable to hear and he's unable to speak. Unable to hear and unable to speak. And as I was preparing this sermon, I exchanged a few emails with a couple of folks from our community who are speech pathologists. Hey, Corey. Thank you. And hey, Lauren. Lauren said she's going to have to watch online later. She, she works on Sunday morning, sadly. Um, but I'll, I'll wave to the camera. And if, Lauren, if you listen later on the podcast, I waved. I waved at you. Um, I would just say for a second, thank you to you two. Uh, and maybe there are other speech pathologists in the room. I don't know. Um, but thank you for your work. Like, it's beautiful, dignifying... Uh, work that you do, and I'm really grateful for you, how you serve our community. Um, but nonetheless, we're, we exchanged a few emails about this. I just wanted to kind of check in, like, hey, from, from your work, do you have any thoughts on this? Um, and I was just reminded in both of those conversations how just foundational the ability <laughs> to, to, to communicate is for experiencing relationship. Um, and I don't know if you always connect this dot, but because God is Trinity, he's a tri-unity of three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit that make up one God, and how you unpack that, that is, a, that is a mystery for the ages. We believe that's what the scriptures affirm. If God is tri-unity or Trinity, that means that before anything was created, relationship existed. Relationship wasn't the product of creation. Relationship existed within the Godhead before the beginning of time itself. And so that means, because God has created us to bear his image and to reflect him in this world, people are crucially, necessarily relational. That's not incidental to who we are as people or as image bearers. But in our sin-stained, fallen world, there are all kinds of things that threaten our ability to know and to be known. And conditions like this man's are key examples of that. So... Just to, to, to chart the course, there's, there's three things that we really want to highlight in this text about Jesus. And, and the first one's going to take a long time, the second two will move more quickly. But I, first, I, I think this passage teaches us beautiful ways about his compassion, the compassion of our king. I think it teaches us about his ruling power, and I think it teaches us about his revelation. So we're going to move through those one at a time. First, his compassion. So, the first couple of verses here, we'll just read those. Then he returned from the region of Tyre, went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hands on him. So we, we discover quickly a few things about this man. First is that he's probably a Gentile. So it might not be intuitive to us all, but the Decapolis was this region to the east of Israel, to the east of the Sea of Galilee, kind of southeast, uh, that was uh, Decapolis, Decapolis, that's ten cities. It was this region of ten kind of Greek culture, Greek-speaking cities, um, made up of largely non-Jews or Gentiles. And so interaction, we just have to have this baseline here, interaction with this man, just like the woman in the last story, if you can remember back in November, uh, the last story of Jesus interacting with the Syrophoenician woman. He's interacting with people in both of these stories that would have made him potentially ceremonially unclean as a Jew. So that's just kind of a baseline level of kind of um, difficulty for this relationship here. Um, so this continues to be an important theme in Mark. 
that we looked at a couple months ago. And it goes all the way back to that conversation, if you remember, of Jesus with the Pharisees when they were debating, what is it that actually makes someone unclean? I don't think it's a coincidence that Mark puts this story soon after that. But we see a couple other things about this man. First is that he was deaf or hard of hearing. More likely than not, he was not born deaf. Uh, because the way that they talk about him, him evidently having learned to speak at some point. So this probably wasn't his condition from birth, but we don't know how long he'd been deaf. We don't know how long he'd, he'd struggled to hear. But that's his condition now. And then the second thing is that he has the serious speech impediment. The Greek term that Mark uses can mean either a total loss of hearing or the total loss, um, I'm sorry, the total loss of the ability to, speech, to speak. So he could have been, he could have been mute. Or... It could have been that he just had a severe, severe speech impediment. Either way, it was severe enough that at best, he was most likely nearly nonverbal. So, think about this. This man's ability to communicate and thus his ability to grow his relationships, especially, especially in this ancient culture that didn't have the therapies or really the compassion even that is more typical here in our culture. His ability to form relationships was so limited so limited. He likely experienced an incredible amount of isolation, exclusion, loneliness, frustration, condescension, or dismissal. So that's the man. He's a Gentile man who can neither hear nor speak. What does Jesus do? How does Jesus treat this man. I just want to look at the first part of verse 33. It says, taking him aside from the crowd privately. I just want to pause there. That's a little detail in the story that, uh, honestly, when I started studying this, I just kind of zoomed past it. Okay, took, took the man away privately, whatever. Didn't pay much attention to it. But as I've studied, I've, I've come to see, like, deep, deep significance to this. So given what we know about this man, Not much, but what we do know, we can assume that much of his life had probably been a spectacle. Tragically, that's what happens to folks with conditions like these so often. A spectacle can get made. Maybe he was made fun of a lot. Maybe he was viewed as some kind of, certainly some kind of other. I love the way that Tim Keller described this. I'm just going to quote Keller from his, his book on Mark. I couldn't have said it better than this. He says, imagine this man as he grew up. He's always been a spectacle. He's deaf, and therefore he can't produce proper speech. And just imagine the way that people made fun of him all his life. Jesus knows this, and Jesus refuses to make a spectacle of him now. Jesus, in his compassion, says, you've you've been singled out publicly enough. Come here. Let's go find some privacy, just you and me. Jesus is going to heal this man, but he's going to do it in a way that gives him his privacy and his dignity as he does it. But keep reading. Not only that, but he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be open. So, just first notice the physical intimacy here, the, the, this touching. Jesus has no fear 
of being made unclean by this man. And we've seen that again and again in Mark's gospel. The unclean doesn't, <laughs> doesn't make Jesus unclean. His cleanliness purifies the unclean in every case. Once again here, Jesus has no fear of physical intimacy with, with this man. But also, what's up with this spit thing? <laughs> that, is, that is weird, right? I think especially in the age of COVID-19, there's no way to read this and not be like, Jesus is stinking out of line here. <laughs> How dare he? But even without that, even without that factor, I, I think we all kind of instinctively read that, like, whoa, is, this, is Jesus kind of like insulting this man or like something like that? And um, it's where ancient context is helpful. Um, instead of, this wasn't meant to be some sort of humiliating or humbling thing for this man. In the, in the ancient culture, um, it was actually pretty common for people who were thought to be healers, to, to, for people to believe that the spit carried some kind of healing property. So Jesus is kind of leaning into an ancient convention of his day, um, and he's going to redeem it. But he nests it. He doesn't just leave it. Oh, yeah, I have magical spit. He nests it under this prayer, this sigh and this prayer up to the heavens, up to his Father for healing for this man. Jesus nests the spit thing, the rubbing of the spit into the man's ears, onto his tongue, actually. He nests it into what I think is a groaning prayer, empathizing with the suffering of this man and taking it to his father in prayer. I think we could see that groan as something deeply, deeply empathetic. Another really cool thing. What is this, this touching the ears and even touching the tongue? What is this? Most commentators recognize Jesus' physical actions here basically as a simplistic form of sign language. That Jesus is, is it's, not, it's not actual sign language, it's not a sophisticated way of communication through signs, but nonetheless, he's, he's sensitively coming into this man's communicative world and he's saying, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take your ears touch your tongue, like he, he's entering in and communicating what he's able to do as he's doing it. And then just imagine this. As Jesus does this, to us it looks a little strange, but to this man I think he probably seen, felt incredibly seen in this moment. And the very first thing that this man had heard in ages, who knows how long, was the words of his Savior in Aramaic. Be opened. Open up. The very first thing he hears is his king. So all of that, I think, hopefully helps us come and see, like, there, there is something profound and beautiful happening here in Jesus' Jesus's interaction. Um, what Jesus is doing is he's putting the doctrine of the imago Dei, the doctrine of the image of God, into practice. Hopefully, if you've been a Christian for much, much time, you know that, that there's this idea, it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, that God created us in his image. It says in Genesis 1, God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. So what happens when that doctrine butts up against the harsh realities of human suffering and even human disability. This is what happens. Jesus shows us right here 
What does that doctrine, the doctrine of the dignity of every person, mean when the disabled come into contact with the Son of God? It's this. It's this. So pause there to first say, ask this. Do you struggle with hearing or speech in this room? Maybe severely, maybe, maybe in a small way. Or beyond that, is there some disability or some condition that maybe you were born with or developed at some point in life that's created hardship for you? Maybe it's produced discouragement. Maybe it's produced insecurity. Maybe it's produced identity issues, relational disconnection from other people. Maybe it's something that very few, if anyone, even knows about. Hear this, okay. That's you. Like, look, look me in the eye. Even if our culture or your friends or your family or, God forbid, this church community Even if we all fail you, Jesus sees you and he dignifies you. He dignifies you and he comes close. Whatever it is, that's the Jesus that we serve. Maybe that's not what you've experienced. Maybe, maybe even something like a, a physical disability of some sort. You've had some sense of fear that like, oh man, God must not care about me. He must be ashamed of me. Maybe this is embarrassed. Maybe this is weird. I don't know. He comes close to you. He comes close to you. Second, there's some severe, some serious application here for how any of us, whether or not we personally uh, can relate to this man or not, there's application here for how we all, as disciples of Jesus, would treat those with disabilities. And if we think about our culture, I, th I think it's fair to say that, that Western culture in general um, has, has been Christianized in so many ways. And one of the great fruits of that, one of the honestly great benefits of that is, is this view, this idea of, of the dignity of every person Kind of, kind of being kind of at least in some form or fashion kind of permeated out into our culture. And so it's very common to find people with all kinds of religious or philosophical backgrounds say, oh, of course, of course every person is valuable. Of course every person is worthy of dignity and care and concern and relationship and whatever else. Of course. Um, the question is, does that actually translate into action in day-to-day -day life? And I, I, for some reason, this just kept coming into my head. I, I remember um, being horrified, horrified by this. Gosh, it was probably 2013, 2012 when I came across this. But um, I, th I think we do well to mention there, there are some horrific ways in which our culture has blind spots, even a culture that would celebrate itself as, as, as embracing these values. But I remember reading an article. I can't even remember. I tried to find it. I couldn't find the old article. You just have to trust me that I saw this. It was an article that said, it was basically, the subject was celebrating the end of Down syndrome. Have you seen this? And I remember reading that and going, oh, that, wow. There, was there some sort of therapy? Or I don't, I don't know. What, what, what is it that is helping people with Down syndrome? 
but as you read the article, you discovered that it was essentially eugenics. It was the as our ability to sort of assess genetic abnormalities in the womb has increased, it's shot up with the likelihood that uh, babies with these abnormalities would be aborted before they have the chance to live. Our culture talks a big game a lot of time, but does it actually translate in a wholly pervasive whole life celebration from womb to tomb, as many say? Not as much. Not as much. Many of us, without realizing it, have adopted a pretty utilitarian view of people, whether in extreme forms or very minor forms. Many of us would be shocked to discover that we live lives of frequent dismissal or dehumanization of those with disabilities. But if we're going to be Jesus' disciples, if we're going to actually be his disciples, if we're actually going to walk close to him and be his hands and feet, part of that discipleship will, will need to be adopting his heart toward people by the power of his spirit. And just pragmatically, I think disciples of Jesus do well, even if you've got a baseline sense of, yes, I, I affirm the dignity of all people, to move from simply dismissing to doing for, but not stopping at doing for. That's often a tragic reality that people with disabilities experience. There's lots of people that will do things for them, but to move beyond that to being with, relationally offering true community and belonging and friendship and companionship and brotherhood and sisterhood. Amen? I believe that's what Jesus is modeling for us here in this story. That's what I think. So how does the story end? Well, the man was healed. Look at that. His ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. This is common for him. Jesus has a, has a plan for his ministry. He doesn't want to get too much attention brought on him. He knows, he knows the teaching and the ministry that he has to do before what is set to come. He's going to be arrested. He's going to go to the cross, but not yet. So Jesus asked people to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. So there you go. That's their response to his, his request. And it says, they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So the people's mind, that last note there, the people's minds were blown. He's done all things well, they say, which recalls, the language there recalls Genesis 1, the language of God seeing his creation and calling it good. And they said, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Which leads us into two more quick, quick observations we should make before we close. First, about the revelation of Jesus. Like every one of Jesus' miracles, this one is loaded with spiritual significance. On one level, yes, it's the story of a man being healed. It's a story that has application for us. All the things we just talked about in terms of how we view disabilities in our world and even within ourselves in relationship to Jesus. But, I'm sure you're aware, the Bible uses these, these metaphors and these images of blindness and deafness to talk about spiritual conditions, being unable or unwilling to look at or to listen to God. 
And so this miracle, I think, serves this function as well. It reminds us that it is Jesus who brings true hearing to all who will receive it. We're supposed to see the plight of this man and and, and see this is me, no matter what my physical condition, this is my spiritual condition. I'm unable to hear, I'm unwilling to hear the voice of my creator so often, and yet Jesus comes and he says, I can heal that. I desire nothing more than to heal that. I have the key to true hearing, and I offer it as a pure gift to anyone who will receive it without discrimination. So if you've come to see Jesus as the king, to see Jesus as the son of God, to see Jesus as your savior, celebrate, because that means you've been given this spiritual vision, this spiritual hearing, and praise God for that. But it's also a lifelong journey of continuing to seek his voice, to seek his voice, we could even just say very basically, in his word, where, he, where the spirit has inspired the biblical authors to write the very words of God in the scripture. To seek his voice in prayer. To seek his voice in community. And spirit, I mean, we don't have to belabor this point. Spiritual hearing is always, always on the cusp of getting drowned out. In our, I imagine in our day, probably more so than any other day, in a day of constant connection uh, via our smartphones and technology, uh, media addiction, social media addiction, even just when you drive down a highway, the barrage of advertisements and billboards and flashing things trying to gather your attention. We live in such a media-saturated world. Such a media-saturated world. We binge Netflix, pop-up ads on our computer, whatever. I remember how the iPod changed my life. I remember as a college student uh, getting my first iPod my freshman year, and my walks to and from class before I had an iPod, were like, I don't know. Yeah, I heard the birds. I heard, I heard, I heard traffic that might hurt me as I crossed the street. You know, I could see. I heard friends calling my name. And I, oh, hey, there's a person over there. And I love music. I listen to a lot of music. I, I love. I love. This is not to downgrade. I'm grateful for, uh, for the iPod. I mean, I guess it was. I guess it was. Uh, I mean, I was grateful for the iPod. It doesn't exist anymore, does it? Um, I guess I just never really got into cassette tape players. I should have done that earlier. Um, but no, it, this isn't to denigrate listening to music. It's, there's nothing wrong with listening to music on a walk. But I, I, I confess, for myself, so much of my life, so much of my fleeting moments, even when I'm doing dishes or have a quick drive somewhere, whatever, it's playing some kind of media. It's, it, it's, it's, it's not creating any space to pray, to listen even to be open and receptive to the people that are actually around me as, as, as I'm going about my, my life. I suspect it's the case for you as well. Fighting for spiritual hearing and attentiveness is hard work. It's much easier to just distract ourselves with other things, even if those things are good or neutral or whatever. But that's the call. Jesus brings true spiritual hearing. Final thing is this teaches us about the ruling power of Jesus. And uh, what's interesting here is, is this, this phrase, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. It's not just a simple summary of what Jesus did here, although that is what Jesus did here. 
but, but it's a declaration that something prophetically, monumentally significant has happened. And we didn't mention it earlier, but in verse 32, uh, this is the ESV translation, that Greek word behind the word uh, speech impediment, or new NIV translates it, um, he couldn't speak clearly, I believe. Um, that word there is only found one other time in the whole Bible. This is, one, this is the one occurrence, and then there's only one other occurrence of that, of that word. And it comes in Isaiah uh, chapter 35, verse 6. So Bible study tip for you. Anytime you're studying the Bible, you see a clear allusion or, or a word that's like, man, this only occurs in these one or two other passages. You do really well to stop and go see, what is that? Because the odds are that the biblical author is trying to link you to that. He's trying to get you to see, oh, this, this is in relationship with this other passage. And if we pop over to Isaiah 35, it turns out, that that passage is all about the beautiful promises of healing and goodness and joy that the Messiah is going to bring when he comes to reign one day. So I'm just, it's only 10 verses. I'm just going to read this for you real quick. Here's what Isaiah 35 says about the future that the Messiah is going to bring and that God is going to bring through him. It says this, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute, there it is, sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert, the burning sand shall become a pool, the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness." The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. What these folks are beginning to declare, whether they even fully recognize it or not, but Mark is, is forcing us to, to zoom in on this. What they're declaring, and Mark is subtly confirming, is that Jesus is the one who is bringing about that day. Jesus is the Messiah who will bring about all the glorious promises of God. He's the Son of God. It's like, do you, do you see any, any mute people beginning to talk? Do you see the blind beginning to see? That really matters. That means this deep day that we've all hoped for somewhere deep inside of our hearts, it has come. This Jesus is that God coming to do that work. He has secured all of these glorious promises for us, shockingly, by dying on our behalf. And so this healing miracle, and others like it, 
They're this foretaste of a coming day when every ailment will finally be healed. We talk about this all the time, but, but and I think we've talked about this in the context of, our, um, of these healing stories of Jesus, but these get tricky because in the here and now, I want you to hear this, we do well to pray for miraculous healings. Do you have a sick relative or a child or a friend or a family member or a coworker or whatever? You do well to pray and to ask Jesus to heal with full faith and belief that he can heal. Hear that. And at the same time, we recognize that if Jesus does heal, it will only be temporary. You thought that through, right? Even if this particular ailment is overcome, death still comes for us all. There will be a day whenever the prayer goes unanswered and death takes its course. Tragically. And you're right to mourn it. We hate it. God hates it. Death still comes for us all. But the Messiah and the great healer, he has come and he's been victorious over death. And our great hope is that he is coming back to finally put away all sin, all evil, all sickness, all death, and all of their friends. These healing miracles, yes, they are, they are an incredible grace to the people in the here and now, but they're a sign. Do you see these things happening? Then the day has come where God has started this great rescue mission. And we're in this weird time now where he's come and he's died, and he's raised, and he's ascended to heaven, and he sent his Holy Spirit into the world, and he's working and moving through his church. That's you, and that's me. In this time between the times where we're waiting, we are waiting. We've tasted it, but we're waiting for the fullness to come where he completes the story. And that, you probably recognize all the parallels in that Isaiah 35 language to, to what we see at the very end of the Bible when God comes and he wipes away every tear from his people's eyes. That's what we wait on. So if we see miraculous healing, we celebrate it, we praise God, we let it stir up our faith, we let it bring joy in the here and now. But more than anything else, we know that it's only a stopgap for this day that's coming when it's all dealt with, Amen. That's a tension. That's one we have to live in. So have you trusted Jesus? Have you seen his works and said, yes, the day has come and it's still yet to come in full? Have you thrown your allegiance to King Jesus? Have you trusted him for salvation? If so, then, then today is the day to joyfully celebrate what he's given, what he's done, and the hope that you have. And if you haven't, then I say, may today be the day that you come to him. Receive the free gift of forgiving grace, the endless well of sacrificial love that he has for you. Jesus is good. Jesus is king. Jesus is coming back. Let's pray.